This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. Nothing teaches you more than success, in my opinion, um, because uh, success is like that mysterious thing which, if you know how to repeat, then you've got this like magic formula, and if you don't know how to repeat, then it's confounding. I am super excited about this episode. I'm joined today by a former Wall Street banker who was raised in Dubai, then returned to India to create content and, in process, built a powerhouse new age media company. On this episode, I'm thrilled to have Ashwin Suresh, one of the three co-founders of a leading digital entertainment company, Pocket Aces, which houses some really well-known properties such as Filter Copy, Dice Media, Gobble, esports gaming company Loco, and much more. Pocket Aces has in many ways disrupted the entertainment landscape of India by giving us some incredible shows and also brought to light some fantastic actors and creators. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with someone who finds this equally valuable and to all my listeners out there, thank you so much. Ashwin, it's a delight to have you on Jamsters. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure completely, Hardik. Thanks for having me. Ashwin, you've spent a your formative years after your um, undergrad and masters uh, in private equity and investment banking a very very structured super structured environments i'd say um mm-hmm. to now in um, i should say rather unstructured media environment <laughs> um <laughs> i'm 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 very curious to know ashwin uh, this point definitely we must unpack a little later but you also graduated at a time when um, you hit the financial crisis you were in the midst of it um what was the thinking then and uh, what led to this transition um so you know look i, I think uh, the, the first part of your point about moving from a structured environment to an unstructured one uh, i think i completely resonate with that right it was quite the culture shock for me to move uh, to the media and entertainment space in india which as you said rightly um is quite chaotic uh, and and lacks processes lacks structure um, and so that's quite an interesting journey and, and we can unpack that a little bit later um i think the you know when i graduated it was actually an interesting time because uh, of two factors one was that you would typically look for jobs and and do your placement almost 6 to 8 months before you graduated right so i graduated from my masters in may 2007 um but i already had jobs and job offers uh, from August 2006 onwards to like I think December 2006 I had done uh, three interviews and I had three offers I think it was JP Morgan where I had done my internship there was uh, Bank of America and there was Citi Group um so in a sense you know I I beat the financial crisis in getting that job and when I graduated also in 2007 uh it still hadn't fully hit we were starting to see we were starting to hear some rumbles about the financial crisis we were starting to hear about CDOs and subprime mortgages and stuff mm-hmm. but you know when i joined um, city group in in i think it was june 2007 i think the stock price was at 57 or 58 among kind of the the highs over the last uh, decade or so and the crisis only hit after and so i remember thinking how every day the stock price would just fall further and further um you know at some point at the, the bottom it got to like 2 cents or 3 cents and i remember buying a lot of city stock at the time saying it's certainly worth more than 2 or 3 cents and then you know that was nice i made some money on that um but it was you know i think the thinking there was look wall street was a place where uh there was opportunity uh this is you know before the crisis when i was making my decision uh wall street was a place which really rewarded analytical uh, and structured thinking um and people who had the ability to work really long hours and uh you know be very diligent and focused um often saw disproportionate upside right so i i was certainly overworked but i was also overpaid 
and uh, you know that was a nice trade off to make when my body and mind were still young and able to do that right so it was a in in very in, in a very simple sense it was the obvious decision for me uh, and of course the crisis made it all the more interesting i i was a little bit fortunate because i worked in the financial institutions group and there you know a financial crisis is actually really good for business um because it means you're doing restructurings you're doing uh, there's a bunch of capital markets activity there's a bunch of um, distressed m&a activity so in all fronts you end up on some side of a deal whether it's uh, in a good market you end up doing a lot of buy side work in a bad market you were doing a lot of uh, sell side mandates so you know i was fortunate in that sense i i, I lucked into the right team just before uh things really got bad so i you know it, it was an interesting journey i think um, you know i wouldn't trade that for anything uh in the world i think it was just a, you know an ideal place to start my career and if if it set me up for um all of the things i was going to do uh after moving to india for four or five years later so um, yeah it was it was quite quite great i'm sure i think there is incredible value when you have a marquee names associated with um your career with your portfolio of work um and i think uh, the leverage that builds in because you worked or because you've been associated with uh, high quality people or organizations i think that adds a lot of credibility when you move into a room even if you've changed gears um and 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 set up a shop in entirely new geographies so for that matter when you um, came back to india um one obviously i'm very curious to know the transition that happened of that switch from leaving a uh, private equity investment banking to choosing uh, the entertainment the films space what was the pivotal decision what was some thought processes happening then so it was a couple of different things and i want to address both the points you you brought up right um, the the thinking for me was was actually um, pretty straightforward at the time you know like you said in 2008 the markets really started getting bad um, and you know while i still you know i had my job and there was some amount of work to do it was starting to get slower and slower so i was finding myself with a lot more free time uh, and i'd always been interested in media and entertainment and i was a consumer of indian media content i was watching films and you know whatever indian content i could uh, you know could either watch or listen to and so i got involved in that space uh, in my free time you know free time was a rare commodity before the financial crisis but when the crisis happened you suddenly found yourself with more time um and i dabbled mm-hmm. in film i you know i took uh, i did a couple of courses at the film new york film academy i worked on a couple of short films myself i had people produce films and i realized that hey look this is an interesting um, you know side hustle maybe i should spend some more time doing it but also at a macro level i was seeing kind of the role of technology in the us um you know we the, the college i went to which is university of illinois um that's where the couple of the founders of youtube went they were just a year senior to me um and mm-hmm. having seen how youtube kind of shaped the video consumption landscape having seen you know facebook we were one of the earliest colleges to get facebook i've been a user since 2004 um you know and so just watching kind of technology play such a pivotal role in just transforming everyday life i felt that that move was going to happen in india sooner uh, rather than later right i thought technology would have its day in india we would see uh, telecommunications and and you know cell phone penetration grow and i thought media would fundamentally change as a result of that just like we were seeing in the us you know i was i was a netflix consumer um back then and with netflix that time used to be the kind of dvd in the mailbox uh, business and i was i was in the first set of users that then switched to streaming uh right so i moved from kind of the dvd in the mail to be able to stream some titles and i thought wow this is fantastic like you know 
it's so much better than my cable box experience, right? So I knew that there was a movement like that in three or five or 10 years in India that was inevitable. And I thought, you know, I've never lived in India. Um, I have a lot of family there, uh, relatives and stuff. And what what would it be like to live there and maybe work in media there? Because it's an industry I'm a consumer of. So it was really going to be a two-year experiment. I had a reasonable amount of money saved up for my, uh, you know, four or five years working in private equity and, and banking. And I said, hey, look, let's just go for two years. Let's see what that's like. I took my GMAT so that after two years, I could apply to business school and come back. Um, fortunately, I've, I've, I've not needed to use that. And I'm sure the, the scores are uh, expired now. But, you know, it was, I think for me, it was just that, you know, this two-year experiment, I have nothing to lose. Worst case, I lose a bit of money, but it's okay. I've saved up money and I can always make money again um, because I've got a good amount of work experience. I've got good degrees. And so there was that sense of like, that safety net was built in, uh, like you said, with some of those credible names uh, on the resume and some of that work experience. Now, the funny part about that is you'd think that that would really help when you move to India, right? And uh, and for a large to a large degree, it does. I think today when I talk to investors or when I um, you know meet potential uh, business partners in, in terms of you know another company you collaborate with, I think it helps to say that you were in banking or you were in private equity or you went to these schools, and I think it opens up a lot of doors. But truly, you won't believe, uh, Ardek, the media industry here is so backward that when I got to, um, you know, the film business, I worked at a studio, The mm. they actually found it funny. They would make fun of the fact that I worked on Wall Street. They had a, a nickname for me, which is, you know, like, go Wall Street, I would say. And I was like, <laughs> I know that's meant to be like derisive, but I'm actually proud of that. And I think it's something quite difficult. Like most of you people won't be able to get you know, get jobs in these kind of companies because just the quality is so, so uh, the bar is so high. Um, and I found it really funny. It was very telling of, of an industry that was about to find itself getting swallowed whole by, by, you know, digital transformation. So um, I think the, the problem with that I found as soon as I came to the India media ecosystem was it was very backward. It was archaic. It was very content with the way it was and uh, unhappy to kind of make any change. Right. And so that was really for me, the impetus because you know, you see that people are sleeping on the job and you're like, hey, this guy's not going to have a job in a few months or his job is going to change dramatically uh, or he could be working for me if I do a couple of things right. And so uh, in that sense, it made sense. Like, and, and everything we did after that, you know, whether it was setting up pocket aces or even now uh, our, our entry into gaming with Loco uh, was always kind of, you know, predicated on the fact that, you know, will I get, can I get distribution faster than they can get innovation? Right, the establishment can get innovation, and I think to a large degree we managed to do that. Um, we were able to build uh, while they were still sleeping. We were, you know, we were using words like web series and digital distribution back in 2014, 2015, when these guys digital was just a line in a in a budget item, and it used to be, you know, limited to 10% of the total marketing spends. So, um, I think the Indian media ecosystem is actually quite uh, poorly managed, and, and there are a few. I think television does it better, even though television cops a lot of flack for the quality of content. Uh, but the quality of mm. businesses in television are often far better. You see the broadcasters, you know, the stars of the world, uh, even the Zs, uh, the Sonys are actually reasonably well-run businesses, very professionally managed. Uh, they don't have that promoter overhang for the most part. There are obviously exceptions, but um, they run like professional businesses. Um, but the movie, you know, studios, the movie uh, production companies, uh, they're a whole other level of incompetent. And I think that uh, they're finding slowly that, you know, that Netflix and Amazon and all of these platforms have come to take their lunch. And, um, you know, again, it's no surprise that it's eventually the broadcasters and institutional businesses that are, that are winning that war. 
No, it's very interesting. You mentioned a couple of points, uh, <clears throat> and 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 I think there is this one point in between that you mentioned about how when you made the plunge happen, uh, people ridiculed you for it. Um, but also, I believe that when you do such heavy transitions, uh, which are like I said at the at the outside, that super structured environments, uh, a lot of uh, credibility baked in. Uh, your pedigree is really valued in environments to a place where you come in and you're like, hey, like you know. what are you doing here right you probably are a more misfit rather than someone is actually fitting in yeah um absolutely and and for that matter uh, when i believe that you were uh, on your flight back to india and with aditi your co-founder and your wife um i also believe that you had contemplated that you could go back to the us maybe if the decision isn't working out there's still time to maybe think no it was it's funny cuz uh, we were so we flew um Turkish Airways because that was kind of the most affordable ticket we could get and Turkish Airways had this nice offer where uh if you book a you know transatlantic flight or a, one of these really long haul flights they would let you halt in Istanbul um for up to a week or some two weeks or whatever so we booked that ticket where we got to stop in Turkey and so we said let's just spend 10 days in Turkey before going to India and it was actually not us it was uh, my in-laws who called at the time and said hey listen are you sure you want to do this because it started <laughs> to feel real for them uh, at that time because they're like wow they've actually gotten on a flight so this is actually happening and they're like are you sure you want to do this there's still time you can still take a flight back to new york your visas are valid uh, both of our employers were gracious enough to offer us that job anytime we wanted it back um both for aditi and me uh, she was working at golden sachs at the time Uh, and so mm. they had said the same thing, and and my company Stepstone had also said they'd welcome us back. So, for my in-laws, it was like, hey, look, why are you giving this up? There's an opportunity. You can go back. You know, the, just book a flight and and reverse it. Um, but I think you know we've all come a long way since then. My in-laws as well, uh, to their credit, today are obviously very happy with uh, the work we do and the progress we've made. Um, and we joke about it a lot. That look, had we taken that flight back, things may have been quite different. Um, but of course, uh, I think everyone's happy that. we took the decisions we did cuz in many ways it's helped us grow it's allowed us to um learn different skills uh, interact with different environments meet new people and honestly like you know i i may express my frustration at it but you know being able to live in india that's something that you know i i never thought i'd you know end up having to do that or or getting that opportunity and it's been nice india has been good to us we've had a good it's been now uh, you know almost 11 years over 10 years um and you know we've built uh you know valuable businesses we've built uh, a reputation for ourselves we've made a lot of friends um so you know i think net net it was the right decision i'm sure i'm sure and um, i think um, there is great merit uh, when you're successful and uh, there is a lot of backing that automatically comes in once you start getting traction and success and yeah. fundraise and and the news so i think i think that's built in particularly it's extremely valuable in the indian context that i've observed uh, ashwin because i think uh, media entertainment as a space uh, you know is is challenging to survive there are at least particularly in india there are there are no structured paths there there is no foreseeable runway and especially when you make that sort of jump uh, i'm sure a lot of people out there might find this valuable to understand uh, how much of an importance do you give in terms of onboarding your parents or your close ones or your spouse or your partner in uh, making this decision happen that's a really good question hardik and i want to address it in two ways right one is um from my own perspective and and two is kind of how we at a company level wanted to address this right so from my own perspective i think it was scary that there was no path i think it created um a little bit of concern for my parents for my in-laws uh, and for aditi as well who at the time you know wasn't in the media business she was working in social development um 
And it was scary that there was no clear path. And, you know, what does a career in media mean, right? And, and uh, especially in film, you know, television, like I said, uh, still was more institutionalized. But in film, what does a career mean? Um, you don't have a regular growth path. You don't know what's next. You don't know the kind of the way to build a career there. Um, and, and so, but I think for us, the simple math was, and, and a lot of people give me a lot of credit for taking that decision, but I honestly don't think it was something so credit worthy because it was mathematics. It was on an Excel sheet, right? I basically calculated, okay, I said, what are my savings? Here's how much I have. What will it cost for me to have no career and just be bumming around for two years in India uh, if we live a modest lifestyle, not something extravagant? Um, and can I afford that? Is that, uh, you know, a relatively small percentage of my total savings? If so, then big deal. Yeah, it's an experiment. It's an experiment and an experience that, you know, you spend two years doing and if it didn't work out, you just say, okay, cool. You know what? No harm, no foul. Uh, I lost some X percent of my, um, you know, my savings, but I gained a lot of kind of learnings and experience and insight. And I'm going to go back and, you know, pick up where I left off. So it didn't give me concern as much as it gave uh, my family concern. Um, as well as my uh, wife concerned. But I think that, you know, once I got the first job, right, and my first job was at Reliance Entertainment, uh, the movie studio. I think that settled a lot of nerves for everyone uh, because it felt like it was a company, it was an institution. uh, And of course, the Reliance name, uh, you know, it was a well-known kind of brand for them. So there was a sense of like, relief that, oh, okay, cool. So there is a job, it is a company, they will keep paying salaries and stuff. Uh, Even though my salary was barely anything, it was not even enough to cover rent. Um, so, but, but at least there was a sense of familiarity, I think for the family. Um, I think the bigger, you know, point that you make here, which I think is worth addressing is this was actually what motivated me to even set up pocket aces in many ways, right? Because, um, you know, my co-founder Anirudh and I discussed this a lot. Like when you think about media in India, you think from a content perspective and a career perspective, from a content perspective, the film business is more aspirational. That's where people are deemed to be making, or this is, this was true, but until about three or four years ago. So, so, um, so bear with me here, but it was always the film business that was deemed to be making the best content. It was always aspirational to work in the, in the movies and not in television. Um, but the movies were the place where you could actually, where it was the hardest struggle to build a career because the movie companies were completely individual promoter run. There was no um, growth plan built in. Nobody, everyone's happy and content being mediocre. There was no ability to, or intent to innovate or interest in innovating. And none of them had a career program. You couldn't go to Yashraj Studios website or Dharma's website and find a career option where you knew how to apply and what jobs would get and what would be your growth after three years, five years, 10 years, right? So people would struggle and struggle and struggle and try to get in. And there was these unofficial ways to get in, which is okay, join a film set, become a fifth, fifth AD, then become a whatever, second, second, then become a third AD, a second AD, a first AD. And then after 10, 15, 20 years of doing that, maybe somebody will give you a break to become a director or to become whatever, right? So it was very unstructured and it was brutal. Yet at the same time, television where the content obviously wasn't as evolved and the writing was catering to a much larger audience and therefore didn't innovate much. That industry was completely professionally run. It was run on ratings. It was run on backing of data. It was run by professionals, salaried employees of large corporations, uh, often public companies who were answerable to shareholders and answerable to other people. And therefore, um, you know, were running very, very, uh, you know, high growth in some sense going concerns. And so, I think that dichotomy was quite kind of surprising for us because we're like, hey, look, why is there either good institutional um, ability but no content ability or 
good content ability but no institutional ability can you do both right and can you provide a career path for people to have both too and that's where we thought that you know and it's interesting because if you think about kind of the talent that comes into the media business right uh, who are these people right either they are creative talent that come from creative backgrounds often they are individuals maybe the first in their families to step into creatives or they are from creative families themselves so you know the children of people in the business already um or there are professionals who are these traditional kind of mbas uh, executives that are coming into it right in the creative field fine people come from you know wherever they come from but in the professional field the best people in mba programs or in engineering programs or whatever they were not coming to media they were still going to other industries because there was much more value um you know either in like fmcg retail uh, or there was something you know people would be in banking or people would be in you know, sort of high finance uh, or even you know core engineering but people wouldn't come to media so a lot of people that weren't going to those fields that weren't getting the most coveted jobs they would end up in media so while it was more institutionalized than film it was still not the top quality of talent and we felt that hey if you set up a company that focuses on quality storytelling and an institutionally run setup then you can actually attract the best mba so somebody who's you know there's some great iitk ima type candidate who otherwise would look at hul or png or you know kotak bank or whatever instead now can they look at a media company and say hey here's where i want to go right and that revolution would not be assured just by setting up a company it would be assured by a company that had access to distribution that had access to creating you know to capital that would help them create content and, and distribute across that distribution so it became kind of this large coming together of a few different factors um so that other people don't have to face that same problem that we face which is there is no career path so today you can go to our website there is a career page and today in fact even some of the old school businesses have started adopting that because they realize there are a lot more options for talent so for them to retain talent they're finally going to have to work hard about it and not just take it for granted and they're doing that and you have more and more studios you have more and more broadcasters you have more uh, you know streaming platforms global ones that are in the market and suddenly the number of jobs in media has just multiplied right and so there is finally a race for talent there is finally um uh, you know a suction of talent from other uh, traditional industries to towards media and i think all of these are good and, and i honestly think that we had a small role to play in ushering that revolution and, and that's something that i'm very proud of certainly and i think i think uh, to the point that you mentioned earlier about why people are not coming to the space i think there are two reasons that i figured one ashwin is that uh, the just the barrier to entry is so low that's one um and also the second point that i feel is that people generally associate media entertainment with just pure play passion uh, with not having a merging of any commerce or a business angle come in yes what's your take on this yeah i look i think the barrier to entry was uh was high before distribution became so uh, democratized right so i think mm-hmm. in the past you know say 5 or 10 years ago there were very few jobs in media right if you wanted to be in the film business there were about 150 films getting made a year of that maybe 50 were credible um and the other 100 were kind of you know what are called more b grade and c grade films um each film would have say one to three writers let's pick an average two that's 300 writing jobs that's 150 directing jobs that's probably 400 acting jobs of this the cream of the crop would go to the same 50 people whether it was actors writers directors right 50 directors would would work on 50 directors writers and actors would work on the top say 30 or 40 films and then you'd have 10 kind of a grade films that had opportunities for you know less experienced people and then maybe another 100 or 
B and C grade films. That's not a lot of jobs for a country of 1.5 billion or 1.3 or whatever our latest number is. That's not a lot of jobs. Uh, and so I actually think the barrier to entry was high because there was no way to, to get into the business. Today, that's changed dramatically. Today, there are uh, possibly 200, 300 original seasons of shows getting made each year. There are uh, still 150, 200 films getting made each year. There are regional language films that are now moving pan-India. Um, nonfiction content has taken on a life of its own. Uh, so all of a sudden, you just have this huge multiplier effect. And today, there aren't just you know three or 400 jobs. There are you know tens of thousands of jobs in the media business. So I think traditionally, it was difficult for good people to come in because there weren't enough jobs. It was not clear how to get one of those jobs, even if you were talented. Uh, and people have bills to pay, right? So some of the good creatives would still end up in advertising agencies or, you know, doing ad films for several years because at least that paid uh, regularly. And there was, you know, uh, as the economy grew, advertising became kind of, it has this nice linear re- relationship with economic growth, right? So um, people at least had those jobs. Uh, I think that today the barrier to entry is completely gone away because distribution is so democratized because I no longer need some big studio or some big actor or some big exhibitor to put my content out to take it in front of people. Mm. I, I have a phone in my hand. That's a distribution device. Uh, it's the hardware. And I have a software like Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever the you know platform YouTube is, right? And so I think this is what's given people so much more power today. Like if you were a Bhuvan Bam, you know, or a Viraj Gilani or one of these creators, nobody would have cast them or hired them or done anything five years ago. They had to prove mm. by, by themselves that there is an audience for them. No study, no, you know, MBA focus group is going to tell you that, hey, there's an audience for them. You have to just go prove it out. And these guys had distribution uh, and were able to then, you know, put their talent on that distribution and showcase that the talent actually has a has an audience. And then, of course, the brands are chasing them. The content creators are chasing them. The filmmakers are chasing them. The, you know, everyone's chasing them, right? So um, I think you just kind of, you know, that world that we're seeing now with democratized distribution, that is you know, that is just going to accelerate and more and more people are going to have the ability to create their own destiny. Uh, And of course, as with anything else, there's a power law, right? So, you know, again, 80% of the dollars will go to 20% of the creators. um, And that's when the premium content revolution takes place. That's when you have more, you know, before you had six movie studios and 52 weeks of, uh, you know, releases. Um, Now you have, you know, six or seven streaming platforms over and above that uh, theatrical businesses are are fine but you also have this unlimited distribution on streaming so i think the world's just opening up now for content and these next 10 or 20 years are going to see this crazy crazy revolution and i do think that people who are who have lucky been lucky enough to have their positions given to them or um, you know just kind of been able to safeguard it by not allowing others in they're going to be in danger because, you know, anyone can now come and become a really, really good content creator. And you see this. I mean, you look at the streaming services content, right? It's not the guys with the big names that are making the best content. It's not, I mean, uh, how many hit shows does Dharma have? Like, probably not, mm. right? Like, maybe that nonfiction one. Um, you know, we have more successful content than Dharma and so does, you know, every other creator. So I think that suddenly it's no it's no longer important who you are, what your name is. Yes, talent access to talent still offers an advantage. And so... Dharma will have that advantage because actors will work work with them even on crappy content, but they may not work with uh, someone smaller on good content. But that advantage also is, I think, short-lived because eventually everyone gravitates towards content. When you see a show like Scam do very well without any known names or known faces um, and beat all these big star-driven 
production, then you realize at some point the world is changing for the better. So in 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 terms of the the opportunity cost that someone has starting now as an artist or a creator, does a dharmas of the world have more leverage still and this might depend this might change going forward but do they still hold a lot of clout given the distribution or the connection or the opportunities that they have i certainly look i, I don't mean to single out dharma here actually uh, i think they right of the world i mean to say like uh, yeah, yeah but 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 they do i'll tell you the advantage they have right they, they still have access to talent like i said earlier a talent would still choose to do a mediocre piece of content with a premium producer like dharma rather than do a premium piece of content with a second uh, uh, tier producer or someone younger or newer to the business, right? That's just a fundamental fact. Um, and so Dharma has that advantage. So access to talent is huge. Access to capital as well. I think while it's changed, while all of these things are changing, I think it's still easier for someone like Dharma to go and uh, access capital either from banks or from other um, you know, equity investors uh, than it is for a lot of younger production companies or newer businesses, right? And and that's where we've been fortunate and we've been kind of our ability to access capital uh, has helped us set ourselves apart from some of the individual mom and shop producer companies, right? Um, and of course, then the, the third thing, which is actually the most important is the decision makers at streaming platforms still don't have the conviction or courage to take bets, right? Because they come from a television world, they come from a world where holding on to your job is paramount and taking content bets is not something they've ever done, right? Because they, a lot of them mm-hmm. are from television, not from film. That's a great so point. They will, they will still pick a bad show from a dharma than a good show from a unknown producer because at least when that show bombs, they can say, hey, but I picked a Karan Johar show, yaar, mujhe kya pata tha. right? And that's why you see a lot of random, like you see you know, movies like Drive and all that Netflix picked up. It's because they can easily cover their ass and say, yeah, yeah, I thought it was a Karan Johar movie. Right. But I think they also know it's bad content. They just don't know any better to, and they can't take those bets because they don't have the courage or conviction or experience. They're just not content people. These guys are not creative ex- executives. I mean, there's so much noise being made about Reed Hastings statement uh, that he's frustrated at the lack of success in India. I think the reasons are painfully obvious to everybody. Right. It's it's you've, you've got a team picking content who doesn't know content, who's never done content that, uh, you know, uh, have never created content and suddenly being put in this position. It's not fair to them either. Because how can you expect them to do something they have no experience doing? At the same time, it will not result in good outputs. It will not result in good outcomes because your input processes are messed up. So I think that, you know, the the premium producers like Dharmas of the world will always have an advantage in a world that still um, makes decisions based on these sorts of factors. Um, of course, that's changing. I think all of these things are changing. You're seeing more and more shows go to people that are less uh, well-known uh, and production companies and producers that are less established um, because they can win on the sheer, you know, um, quality of their content alone. All they need are opportunities, which if 10 opportunities go to premium producers, there's still one or two opportunities coming to the new age guys. And so in that, people will make their mark. You know, we've been able to with with some of our shows, um, like Little Things or whatever, and, and others will also be able to do that. And I think certainly uh, credit to you guys for uh, helping some amazing breakout stars uh, to bring to the industry like Mithila Palkar and Ayush and Dhruv and, and from other networks like Sumit. I think, I think it's, it's, it's the digital that gave the opportunity or at least the access to opportunity to show themselves, showcase their talent. And I think now they've become or on the verge of becoming mainstream artists, working with the best of the names that we sort of recognize with in terms of talent and, and, and Nami Girami Nam Jo Bolte Hain. Um, but 
as as an actor uh, where should someone focus as an artist where should someone focus uh, especially when like the the opportunities like you mentioned are so many now um where should someone then just purely from the perspective of commerce and time and limited opportunities considering where they are are there uh, where should someone be actually focusing their energies right now look i think it's a difficult question to answer because the answer varies from person to person right i think for us the um the approach to creating talent was always let the audience decide right and and the, the established approach is not that the established approach is approaches that some producer or some casting director or somebody sits and you watches a bunch of auditions and says okay i like this person i don't like that person now now it's not like we don't do that either we do some of that um but to a large mm-hmm. extent we don't let our biases come in the way we just let kind of the audience tell us whether they like somebody or not now you know it's funny you talked about some of these names mithila or ayush or whatever and um i remember i was at this conference uh, i think it's india film project or something where there was a casting director on stage talking about casting process and they were like it's so refreshing to see such new talent get explored and you know like you know i always wonder like where were they why didn't i ever see the audition often are you sure this one or that one and i said you you actually did see the auditions they all auditioned with you you just like rejected them because you know you just didn't have any metric to evaluate them because you just like said hey, they're not established that you know i they they don't stand out for me or you know maybe someone's not traditionally good looking or someone's you know just not doesn't have the look and face that you're going for but the difference is that we were able to just put that out in front of the audience the audience decided it's not like every talent we've put out has worked we've had a lot of talent we've tried out and audiences have rejected them completely um but at the same time it's not us taking the call it's we literally we're looking at the data we're looking at the numbers and we're taking very very educated guesses based on what the audience is telling us right so that's the first part of it the second part is i think that every uh, you know content creator today whether you're an actor or a writer or a director whatever you some part involved in the content creation process should realize that the opportunities are limitless but it is also everybody else around you has the same opportunity as you and so it's no longer okay to just say hey i'm great at my job you need to go out there build a brand for yourself you need to go out there connect with your audience with your community um so i think that you know actors who shun social media or who refuse to kind of directly interact with um you know with, with their audience it's fine if you're like you know ranbir kapoor and you know you get films on the back backing of your name or your family or whatever right you don't have mm-hmm. to like work that hard for for the opportunity itself uh maybe you have to work hard to keep the opportunity but to receive it is not not that hard but if you're some you know somebody from the outside that's looking to make it you have to work hard on your social media game you have to keep connecting with the audience i mean you can't take that for granted because every day that you're not doing that somebody else is doing it and gra- gaining greater market share or greater mind share uh, from the audience right so um you know what should people focus on i think it really depends on the kind of content they want to create i think that i'm a believer that you know art is not one of these things that you just you know one day sit down you get inspiration and it happens art is a very practiced thing just like sport or any other uh, skill right it's like you don't see cricketers just saying oh today i'm feeling i'm going to hit a century and you just go and hit a century they they don't you know, they practice every day day in and day out you know even on when they're going through bad patches or good patches the process remains the same and i think writers and you know other such you know directors often think that nee i'll just sit in a corner you know smoke up and drink whiskey and suddenly i'll get a epiphany that this is the show or this is the movie uh, but i think the you know reality is that you have to like if you're a writer you have to write every day you have to sit and put words on a page every single day and 95% of that is going to be garbage but the 5% that comes out is going to be pure genius um and i think that that's it's an iterative and you know uh, consistent process so i think 
my advice to anyone creating content has always been the same, which is just keep doing it. Just keep doing more of it. Just keep doing it regularly. Let, like build that muscle. It's not a, a one-off activity. It's actually a muscle you're building and you have to keep doing that again and again till it keeps improving. And I've seen people do that well. I've seen a lot of people do that well. And, and I know it's possible to create great content doing that. It's less sexy. It's not as cool to tell that story that, you know, I was just thinking this and I just felt, hey, what if we did this? And then this became the best thing ever. So it's not sexy, but that's the reality of how to actually create content. I think I want to interject here and talk about the strategy that you use uh, at Pocket Aces, which is a very data driven process, uh, which then sort of drives your decision making towards what show is working, who to get on board and things of that nature, uh, which uh, I'm not sure, correct me if I'm wrong, this feels slightly different in contrast to what I'm mentioning is just keep creating content. Um, if it works, if it doesn't work, if it's a long-term thing, uh, whether it's actually going to be feasible for you to make a living out of it. Um, the, the reason I'm saying this is that passion often has this uh, unsaid angle of uh, not having commerce baked in, money baked in. I, I want to I want to challenge that thought and probably uh, bring your perspective on this that how can someone have that perspective because even the most passionate individual whoever he or she is uh, at the end of the day needs to make a living out of this right right Ashwin I think I think it's just not possible to be that starving artist Joe you know people used to talk in the past that we spent like 15 20 years and there is no limelight no end of the tunnel light but we still keep on doing the stuff uh, tell me more about that tell me more about that thought process. Yeah, look, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, passion is overrated without uh, some reality checks, right? Without kind of a commercial angle to it. I mean, these are businesses and these are not individual endeavors. And I think you have to think about art like that as well, which is there is certain art that you can do for yourself. Um, you know, if you are a painter, for example, the cost to create a painting uh, is not very high. And so there are several individuals who can afford to paint for themselves, right? Who can afford the cost of buying an easel and a canvas and, and paint and then, uh, and actually executing it, right? It's a function of time. It's a single person job. And then there are things like films and shows, which are actually highly collaborative, highly expensive endeavors. Um, there's not many individual uh, individual people in the world who can afford to finance one of these things themselves, right? Um, and, and that gets truer and truer as you go kind of to more expensive markets. So you go to Hollywood, uh, you know, even a Tom Cruise or a Brad Pitt who are very wealthy may not be able to finance a single film 100% on their own. Uh, in India, to some degree, they still can. The Shah Rukh Khans of the world can still fund the stuff if they wanted to, but of course they don't need to. Um, so whenever you're doing art that's expensive or that's collaborative or that requires huge, huge investment, you have a fiduciary responsibility to deliver a return on that investment because that's entirely the function of capital allocation, right? Is to allocate capital uh, towards maximizing uh, returns uh, overall. So I think that uh, artists should recognize that they're a part of that process. Uh, I find it very, very frustrating to work with artists who um, are extremely, um, you know, focused only on the art without a view to the commerce itself um, or to the view that of all the other people involved in that art, because, you know, not everyone's sitting around waiting to see what genius your mind produces, right? People are also doing this for a living. For several people, there are uh, below the line workers on a, on a film set who are not doing this out of passion. They're doing this out of a necessity. This is a job just like any other job. Uh, for sure. They don't care if your sure. art is, you know, nine on 10 or eight on 10. They just want to make sure that it gets done, that their jobs are safe, that they get paid for their for their uh, time and effort and that there's a, uh, the next job available to them at some point. So I think that that, that responsibility exists. And it, unfortunately or fortunately, it sits primarily on the shoulders of 
the ATL talent, which is the producers, the directors, the writers, um, the actors. Uh, but often it's that talent that is the most moody and that is the most um, uh, difficult about um, kind of marrying commerce and art. And so it, 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 I think there's a huge responsibility that ATL talent often have uh, to maintaining that balance, uh, especially for the sake of um, the, the capital being invested as well as people's time. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't think there's two ways about it. I don't think there's an argument about it. And if you want to focus purely on the passion, then go do art that you can fund yourself and you don't need anyone else. To, then you're not answerable to anyone. Mm. True, true. You know, one of the most frustrating thing about being an artist, and, and I think from this, from the personal experience, is this that um, in general, you be a work for hire, right? I think when the work comes in, uh, people get uh, paid for it and and there is an angle built in now with time you end up raising your prices you build equity uh of postal equity is what i mean to say uh brand equity and 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 then you sort of start leveraging with with interesting projects and stuff of that nature but that, that's a fairly long process um i'm i'm curious to know would there be newer mindset newer mental models that you'd recommend let's say actors or anchors or digital creators um to think about ownership or equity building businesses rather than just be work for hires Man, I would love the day, Hardik, that people could actually start thinking like that. Because honestly, everybody should try to own some amount of equity value in anything they create, right? Now, this is easier said than done. Uh, and in more traditional industries, if you're working in a you know auto manufacturing plant, uh, it's hard for you to have any ownership other than through maybe stock options or company options or whatever. Um, but certainly in, in the case of art, in the case of artists who have that privilege and that ability, um, I agree with you 100%. Um, content creators should be looking to create, you know, uh, content that they can own in some manner, uh, that they that they risk capital towards, or they they contribute time or effort towards. Um, and certainly, I think the the biggest problem I find, in fact, in the media business here is people are always focused on, um, you know, cash over equity, uh, and so they're very transactional in nature, and it's never they're never doing longer term deals, always doing shorter term deals. And I think that's a, fundamentally something I admire about the American market and not just the media market, but in most industries, people are always focused on getting some sort of deal that helps both sides win. Uh, but in India, it almost feels like a zero-sum game. So it's like if if I, if you have to win, then I must lose. Or if I have to win, you must lose. And therefore, there's a high level of mistrust. Uh, and so people are transactional. People focus on kind of a uh, dollar today versus you know $3 tomorrow. Uh, and the minute people are more secure in, in their deal making, that will change. And I think uh, we're already seeing a lot of, um, you know, people who've made money or who've seen success uh, start to change their attitude towards longer term partnerships. I think that is such an incredible, incredible point. Um, Ashwin, I must unpack there. Naval Ravikant, you know, the famed angel investor, one of the most famous entrepreneurs out there, uh, mentions this one line that play long term game with long term people. And that essentially changes the whole perspective of looking at things. When you're in a long-term game, you're not only looking out for yourself, but you're also looking for people who are working with you. So in the process, both of you or the three or the four of you, all of you collectively create wealth. But in a short-term game, it's me over the other. It's a zero-sum game where you win at the expense of me. Um, and and I think that is such a huge challenge uh, with this space because everyone is for the short term win. Um, everyone is for that one project that I will get and you will not get. Is there is there is there a way that you would recommend or being associated with or connected with people or approaches something that people should be aware of that this is not a short term thing. It's not just a quick you know claim to fame. Uh, what, what's your thought on this in terms of 
you know navigating this or or building the right kind of relationships i think this is this is not natural human behavior right human behavior is to focus on short term uh, gains versus long term I mean, it's the same reason that you're careful when you cross the road um because you know you could get short term hit and die but you're not careful about uh, the sugar you ingest in your system because diabetes seems like a much more long term problem it's not a problem that you'll face today when you eat that you know drink that can of coke right so we're fundamentally wired to focus on short term issues and not long term issues that's just human nature um but i think the way to get people to think outside of that construct is to to actually see that success right to see it play out you need a few wins you need a few you need to see a few people who've taken long term bets and seen that pay out right if you look at the film industry i'll give you a basic example for the longest time in the film industry actors got paid a fee and they moved on right you weren't in the 70s 80s and all actors weren't turning producer they were just an actor they got paid a salary and then they moved on and all the upside or all the downsides sat with the producer after seeing it play out in other markets slowly actors in india started saying hey you know what i'm happy to take a smaller fee up front but i'll take a portion of the upside or the back end right i'll get a mm. you know bonus or i'll get some i'll take a producer cut all of a sudden you know and it's possible that in many cases people didn't see more money by doing that they may have been better off taking that fee but in several cases they also did see that you know right with the khans especially i think salman khan amir khan multiple times have been producers on their movies or they were among the early guys to take back end deals and they made a lot of money doing that right and once they did that then five other actors who come in are like hey you know what i'm keen on taking a, a long term deal similarly you see this now with endorsements right like today a lot of i mean there was a lot in the news about katrina kaif making a lot of money off the nike ipo because katrina took her fee not just in cash but also in equity now that is a com- incredibly forward thinking decision right and you mm. have to see those successes you have to see the virat kohlis and katrina kaifs of the world succeed by doing that before you can actually convince others it's a good idea because most people are scared to take that so it, it takes one risk taker or somebody who's got more of a long term view or long term gene and often the people who can take that are people who don't need the short term transaction so you cannot expect a fresh writer to say hey you know what i'm going to take all my salary in back end i don't need a cash component because they're just building a name for themselves they're just building uh, you know uh, starting to earn wealth but a wealthy writer or a wealthy actor can do that so first time actors are not going to do that but an amir or salman who you know they've made enough money to live out the rest of their lives and maybe a couple generations comfortably right so they're not doing this purely like they don't need to do a job for the money and so they can mm. afford to take that risk and i think that you know to build those relationships or to get those equations sorted you have to have enough early examples of early wins and you have to show people that they can win as well if they if they think along those lines and i think then you will see that change uh, we already see it i mean you won't believe when we uh, when we started the company we uh, we issued employee stock options esops uh, to the first 75 people when they joined and, and we stopped that program after we saw um, kind of some of those results um, a lot of people didn't want the esops they said hey you know what even if you're giving me like 10 lakhs in esops just give me a lakh more per year in my salary that's that's more valuable for me than 10 lakhs in esops and of course yeah. those people didn't see the larger picture and then there are several others who said no i want the esops and those guys have now made you know uh, lakhs and crores on on just simple bets right so now that the people who rejected it look at the people who accepted it and have done so well more and more people are like hey no i want esops because they're now seeing proof of it so i think you just have to kind of create that environment where some people win uh, and others will look at that win and say hey i want to be a part of this as well uh, it it really you know intrigued me earlier when uh, y'all had raised funding with sequoia and 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 some incredible vcs and it really interested me in understanding that content production 
just in general had not been associated with you know traditional vc funding uh, they they sort of you know kept away because it was a too confusing chaotic process and and vcs prefer structures uh, very curious to know what did the conversation happen around i understand you bring in a, a lot of interesting background with your with your private equity and investment banking experience um but how did you go about convincing investors that there is a market there uh, things of the scale numbers how did how did the conversation pan out yeah look i think you're right in that um traditional venture investors have always found found it hard to understand content businesses um especially businesses that don't have their own platforms right uh, much like ours um and and they're often scared that it's a hits driven business and uh, you know you can you can't replicate success uh you know which which in many ways ironically is how venture capital also is <laughs> but uh, i think for us it was important to show uh, sequoia and other investors that our approach towards content creation the the use of data the use of iterative processes the the use of low cost structures to prove out ip before investing larger sums of capital into into that ip that was a sustainable and repeatable process right we had to show uh, and i remember when we first reached out to sequoia it was when we had just had one uh, you know one success we had one uh, video that had done really well and we said hey this is you know we look how great we are please invest and they said you know it's great that you've had the success but how do i know it's repeatable and um, you know i would rather watch and wait um, you know wait and was watch was it the ban ban video yeah it was actually ban 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 had done really well uh, and they were like hey this is amazing but you know let's wait and watch to see can you do this again and again and i think that's what got us thinking as well uh, about the process itself and said how do we replicate success i i've always felt that you learn more from your successes than you learn from your failures uh, i i see a lot of management gurus and you know twitter uh, philosophers put out stuff about you know failure can teach you this and teach you that sure it does teach you a lot but nothing teaches you more than success in my opinion um because uh, success is like that mysterious thing which if you know how to repeat then you've got this like magic formula and if you don't know how to repeat then it's confounding um mm-hmm. you know whereas failure is not something you're trying to repeat right so um i think we we developed those processes uh, tested them out iterated on them and kept and until date we keep improving on them um and i think sequoia tracked us for almost you know 6 or 8 months and this literally week after week we would deliver this mega hit and uh, at some point they said hey look man we've been tracking obviously and we're happy to take a bet um and let's see what you know how this pans out and and you know i'm grateful that they did take that bet it's turned out to be um you know a, a company changing decision for us uh, and of course it's turned out to be a good investment for them as well uh, and given all of us the opportunity to 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 build something of value so are all investors still on board or has anyone exited so far no all of our investors are still happy to be uh, part of the journey and there's still a lot of growth um, you know that we we're seeing on a you know daily monthly weekly yearly basis that uh, everyone's uh, still a part of so yeah no it's been it's been amazing to have uh, this set of committed investors in fact sometimes we talk to them and say hey are you looking to an exit anytime soon are you comfortable and a lot of them are like hey, i'm happy to stick around for another 3 or 4 years and see how this plays out because you know we like the business um of course what we did do um was we spun loco out into its own company so uh, sometime last mm-hmm. year um we separated loco from pocket aces so now it's a separate entity and it has its own set of investors um that are different uh, from the pocket aces investors uh, of course there's some overlap there's some investors in common um mm-hmm. but uh, so that we did and so that now investors have uh, you know a share in loco as well as in pocket aces and for those that came in early uh, in the pocket aces journey they're seeing upside in multiple ways now so we're very happy to have delivered that and um 
you know, grateful for the, the trust these guys have shown in us over all these, it's been whatever, six or seven years now. So when you started out, uh, you know, BuzzFeed was, was a huge name then, Upworthy were like brand names then. Um, did they play some sort of inspiration in your journey as well? Yeah, look, I think to an extent, I think BuzzFeed um, did one thing very well, which, uh, you know, which I think they should get credit for, which is they figured out a repeatable process to, I mean, they figured out how to leverage third-party distribution uh, very well with a repeatable content creation process. And I think, you know, knowing what kind of videos would work on YouTube or on Facebook consistently, um, you know, they started off with this great content thesis and a lot of it made a lot of sense. But I think somewhere along the way, they themselves stopped following it and they saw that traction fall through. I think we probably do more views on videos uh, today than BuzzFeed does um, Hmm. uh, because we've actually taken that to the next level. We've taken that content thesis, we've worked on it, evolved it, adapted it uh, and improved it over the years. Um, and so today we have a really good sense for how to create something that, that does well on social. And, and the answers are different for whether it's, um, you know, YouTube or Facebook or Instagram. Uh, and so I think that evolution of that thesis, evolution of that process, was something we did very well. Uh, but certainly the inspiration, um, you know, BuzzFeed was one of the places where we drew that inspiration from. Uh, but we also married it with kind of some of the systems that Google had built or how Netflix was structured from a personnel perspective. So um, we, we borrowed and stole ideas from a lot of different places. Um, and I think we found a, a good mix and a good recipe overall. So one of the things that I'm, I'm very intrigued by is just the consistent supply of high quality content. Uh, and while everyone may not be a hit, but but on, on a large net net basis, you're looking at, you know, those home runs. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know how is it that you train your writers, uh, your teams to consistently create either weekly or daily uh, content and, and how do you put creators then on a timeline? Uh, you'd be surprised. I mean, so the first thing I realized very early on and, and we've been doing it since then is that people who are looking for an opportunity, you know, who are hungry, young, hardworking, if you give them an opportunity, they are willing to learn any new process that helps them improve. They're looking, people are looking to do things be- well and do things better, right? So mm-hmm. one of the things we do is we hire a lot of people just directly out of college with no experience because I find that people with experience come with fixed notions of how content should be created, how much time things take, what process it should be implemented. And I find that really frustrating because, you know, I feel like I'm the best example of somebody who had no experience who came and did it better than 99% of, of people in this country, right? So mm-hmm. I, I like to replicate that with, um, with our talent. So we hire a lot of young people. We conduct a very extensive training program as soon as they come in. And more than anything, we let them hit the ground running very quickly. So somebody who joins the company in month one, by month two or month three, they're already, they already have videos out, whether they worked on it as a writer, as a director, as a, you know, assistant director, it doesn't matter, but there will be videos that are already out. So they get to see the result of their efforts very quickly because it only takes, you know, six hours to know whether your video is doing well or not. It only takes a few hours to read the comments, right? So um, just giving them an ability to launch ASAP uh, really works. And so people are happy to do timelines. We have a good process in place, uh, which determines how long each thing should take. Uh, Because we also remember, we're not working uh, in, in isolation in a bubble, right? We work with different stakeholders. We work with advertisers. We work with streaming platforms. We work with, uh, you know, our internal teams across, you know, multiple cities, multiple geographies. Um, and to be able to to coordinate that efficiently, you have to have a process. You have to have a timeline and everybody has to adhere to it. So uh, if you train people young and you train them early, 
those things stick with them. Uh, in fact, the best testament of this is today, um, every company, every content company, every ad agency, every streaming platform, even the likes of Netflix, uh, just keep trying to poach our talent because um, we have among the best training programs uh, in the country, I would argue. And, um, you know, it becomes challenging for us because it means we have to fight harder to retain our talent, but also we've built a really good culture at the company. And so that uh, kind of does the trick for us to a large degree because uh, people want to work there. It's a good place. Their ideas are respected. It's meritocratic. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's a combination of uh, hiring good people and then putting good systems and processes in place to to train and retain them. So then decisions are are distributed in terms of uh, either hierarchies or just pure merit or like like how does it work in terms of decision making there? Are, are people at the lower rung level also equally empowered to take those important decisions too? Absolutely. Now, I won't bullshit you and say everyone's got equal decision making power. That's not, obviously not the case uh, in any organization Correct. and anyone who tells you Correct. otherwise is lying. Uh, but I will tell you what we do. There are a couple of things that I think uh, hold us in good stead. One is we don't have what I call the hippo effect, right, which is the highest paid person's opinion. We don't have a system where just because you get paid the most, or you're the most senior, or the, you're the oldest, that your decision should be the right one. For every task and every activity and every project or every function, we determine who is the owner of that project and who are the support functions there. Right? So it could be a particular video where the owner could be the head of the channel which where the video is happening or it could be some other activity or some other exercise or somebody else owns that process. And everybody works towards the decisions that that owner takes. And we have a philosophy of, you know, disagree but commit where it's okay. If you're not the owner of a process, you're welcome to disagree with some of the decisions but you still have to commit to it. Uh, and if you're the owner of the process, you're welcome to take the decisions you want. Uh, and others would disagree but commit or they will agree and commit. Uh, but commitment is is without question, right? So I think that once you put a bunch of these frameworks in place, people do feel empowered even if they're not the decision maker of every process. So if you are mm. new to the company, you're a one-week-old uh, writer, you're not coming and saying, hey, what the hell, I'm feeling unempowered because I didn't get to take decisions. You are still saying, hey, I may not be taking decisions yet because I'm still like learning what the, what the uh, framework of thinking is. But I'm seeing people who are barely six months older in the system than me or a year older in the system, they're taking these decisions. And so when you see other people around you getting empowered, you automatically feel a sense of empowerment because you know it's available to you as well once you get to that stage. So that system works really well for us. Um, it's not purely driven on hierarchy or, uh, you know, or, or tenure. It's driven on merit. It's driven on, uh, you know, uh, key objective, ownership of that objective or that, pro that process. So uh, it's a... It's a complex system, but actually when broken down, it's quite simple. But at the at the outset, I'm sure things were not so crystal clear, right? I think I think when you started off Pocket Aces, uh, I believe you were more of a film production company and you did procure some rights for a few uh, scripts or content pieces too. Yeah, but at that time, we didn't have the problem of decision making because we were only mm. two people, right? So it was just Anirudh and me, we were doing taking all the decisions ourselves. But then the pivot to uh, doing happened once you visited Khan, is it? Uh, for, for the conference that you had mentioned about? Yeah, I think Khan was a, certainly um, one of the turning points. But I think even before that, we had decided that, you know, we were getting frustrated by not having control over processes, right? We were just, everything was taking too long. We would be at someone else's mercy. We didn't have um, the ability to take a call on distribution or anything, right, in the film business. And so once we had a little bit of money uh, at our disposal from our angel investor, um, we just felt, hey, you know what, why wait around for the film guys to, to get it or to get with the program? They, they probably never will. Uh, we're better off doing it from the outside, just build our own distribution. So that thought process had already 
begun to take shape. And I think Khan just accelerated it because we saw that everything we were saying and thinking and, uh, you know, planning had been, you know, that process was about three or four years uh, in the works in the US and other markets. So literally what we were planning to do started about three or four years ago in other markets. And we said, hey, this is the best time to start this in India. And that's why we were among the first guys to start doing this digital distribution, building a content function, building these processes, building a long form capability, all of that. Uh, we were among the first to do that because we'd seen in Khan how it had played out in other markets and we thought it was worth uh, worth building. There are countless people who are, very who are trying and not succeeding in that, right? That's that's a that's a very valid point. So when when you think about pocket aces, uh, I'm curious to know when someone looks at you from the outside, do they look at you as a production company or a content company or an agency? <laughs> that's a great question. You've touched a nerve there because the answer is it depends who's looking, right? Um, I think that People who work with us on the advertising side often think we're an agency. Um, you know, uh, our streaming partners think we're a production house. Um, you know, other people, the investors look at us as a content company. It really just, you know, I believe we're a content company that has uh, the ability to, um, you know, to, to with our own agency and our own production house internally, right? That's one way to think about it. Uh, by agency, I mean, we can provide services to advertisers. Um, by production house, I mean, we can produce our content ourselves. Uh, but we're really a media company. We're a large um, you know, media company. And uh, we have, among other things, these couple of capabilities, right? So I think that it's hard to box us into one. There is the, the biggest challenge I've found while running the company is that there's no direct com- comparison that I can make. I can't say, oh, we're like, like with Loco, at least I look at it and people say, oh, are you like the Twitch of India or the YouTube gaming mm-hmm. of India? And I say, yeah, true. Because you can point to that and say, okay, there's a very similar model. Uh, sure, we're maybe more mobile focused or we're focused on multiple languages and there are some fundamental differences, but largely you can point to these things and say, hey, you know what? These are similar. But with Pocket Aces, uh, we're so unique in that how many companies do you know that have their own social distribution, that have a large content studio that produces for third-party distributors, uh, but that also works with advertisers and and uh, you know manages influencers and content creators. It's just... I think we're unique in that sense. And even in India, um, different people have tried to build different parts of what we've built, but no one's built the whole stack that we've built. Uh, you can't name a single company or they've tried and failed and, you know, uh, and then gone and sold to some you know, beauty company or you know, that sort of thing. So then more inward facing, um, Ashwin, how do then you look at pocket aces? Is there a parallel that you draw with a certain company internationally that you'd like to either replicate or, you know, better is there a parallel that you draw with at least someone outside? I mean, uh, at a very, 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 very different scale, I like to think we're building along the same lines Disney was built, right? We are building some amount of third-party distribution. You know, Disney has always had a very strong linear distribution uh, in the past uh, on cable. Um, we are building some amount of tech that helps our processes, um, you know, run in very kind of uh, seamlessly. Um, Disney has done the same thing on uh, several cases. In fact, um, they even have companies like BAM Tech within Disney that um, you know that are technology focused plays. And of course, we are also uh, a creator of IPs, right? And we have premium IPs that we then uh, either license out to others or, or create for ourselves, uh, much like they have kind of Marvel and, and all of these other kind of content pieces, right? Lucas and all of that. Um, so. In a sense, you know, it's it's a bit audacious to say Disney because they're obviously like a bazillion times larger than us. But um, I think the model that we like is that is that I think a media company has to have everything. It has to have 
you know, distribution that it can rely on from time to time, even if that's sitting on third-party networks, um, it's still something you should control. It, it's got to have, um, you know, creation ability, so a studio and some IP creation mechanism uh, and ownership. And, and I think you have to manage talent really well, right? Because um, I think one of the things that, you know, we, we learned along the ride is that, like you said, we automatically ended up creating so much talent um, that we realized that we needed to set up uh, cloud, which is our talent management uh, division, to manage mm. this talent. Because all of a sudden they would come to us or brands or advertisers would reach out to us saying, hey, can you connect me to this person or can, can you help me get a deal done with this person? So we're like, okay, we can do that. Let's just manage the talent, provide end-to-end services, give them kind of a, um, a whole path and a whole suite of services. So I think Disney would be one comparison for me. But again, uh, it's just hard because what we're building is truly, I don't think there's a lot of people who've built anything like this uh, or all components of it together. Interesting. Interesting. Now, when you when you reflect back on your career that you've built, um, Ashwin, I'm, I'm curious to know what are the some things that you now know to be true which weren't true earlier? I think that a lot of it is stuff that, you know, I've said earlier as well in this conversation, which is that I think I realized, and maybe this is not something I realized today, but, uh, you know, as I started this journey, is that I realized content is is an iterative process. It is not a sexy process. Um, I also realized that, uh, you know, you don't need to have all the pieces of, uh, of the problem solved to start solutioning. You've just got to kind of, a lot of this stuff happens in real time. The solutions kind of get formed as you're, you know, on the go in some sense, on the fly. Um, and I realized that you don't have to have uh, any experience in content or any expertise in content to make good content. I think that uh, everybody who claims to have this superior advantage over, um, you know, over others in the content ecosystem, either because of their uh, passion for content or the amount of content they've consumed or anything else, it's BS. Like content is a completely subjective um, art form, and you know, really, the the true value of the content is determined by the consumer of that content, not by the creator. And I think that all of these things, um, you know, I believe to be true today, but uh, maybe I didn't didn't think so coming into the business. And certainly, a lot of uh, talent and artists don't don't realize today. Um, I must ask you at this juncture that who are the entrepreneurs, uh, business leaders that you admire? Uh, there's a lot, to be honest. I, I'm not one of those guys that's like, hey, look, I idolize this one person. And so, hey, you know, like sure. this person is my sure. favorite. Hmm. But I do have like, I do think there's like different things about different people I really admire. Like, you know, you look at someone like, say, a Bill Gates and just kind of the, you know, the ability to sustain uh, that leadership position uh, in a business for 30, 40 years, um, is, or maybe maybe longer now, um, is truly remarkable, right? It's admirable. You look at someone like Elon Musk and just the ability to put, to stake everything on the line and to have these audacious, unrealistic goals, uh, that's admirable. Um, I think even someone like Mark Zuckerberg, right? People give him a lot of heat because, uh, and rightfully so, because of a lot of the questionable practices of his company. Mm. Um, but also what people forget very quickly is that, um, you know, between 2004 and maybe 2007, like what must it have been? Uh, cause I was, you know, we're the same age and I was in college the same time he was in his college. And, um, what must it have been for him to be running the fastest growing startup, uh, you know, of whatever the last 50 years, um, being with all that pressure being put on him, the weight of expectations, um, the decision to drop out of, uh, Harvard and build this, 
what must that have been like? And and to still you know thrive and survive and uh, beat out the competition. I thought that competitive spirit and the ability to win at all odds um, was tremendous. I think uh, there are several Indian leaders I admire. In fact, I think that you know in India I'm I'm often fascinated by um, companies that build just real businesses, right? Sustainable businesses, good financial. Like somebody was. Somebody sent me the the boat uh, prospectus today um, because of their upcoming IPO, and you just look mm-hmm. at those numbers. It's just so obvious that's a solid business, right? Like, you know, they've not they put their head down, worked hard, focused on, um, you know, on the fundamentals, and not worried about what the market says or what sexy story you can sell to the to a journalist or, you know, what fundraise story the media wants to lap up, uh, and instead just focused on kind of building building a real business. And so, I think that there's a lot of um, you know, there are a lot of things about different leaders that I really admire, but, you know, I, I pick and choose just like everything else. And you'll see this pattern if, you know, you asked how we built uh, the company as well, right? Like we stole some inspiration from BuzzFeed. We stole some from Netflix, some from Google, some from somewhere else. Uh, and similarly on an individual level, um, you know, I, I just read about different leaders and I find uh, just some of the stuff like uh, very interesting. It's almost like an assortment of sorts. Of, of pick and choose and things that you like and then sort of figuring out. <laughs> That's like out. my life. No, it's my career is that too. You know, studied studied engineering, did a bit of finance, did some media, now into gaming, uh, building a tech venture. Like it's, you know, I feel like life's too short to, to put all your eggs in one basket. So, um, you know, I, I like the fact that, you know, you have a diversity of uh, inspiration, diversity of experiences, diversity of like lifestyles. Uh, you know, I've lived now in, uh, in three different countries. I aim to live in more countries. So, I just personally, I, I'm not satisfied just doing one thing and doing it for the rest of my life. Like I, I, I you know, that's just my personality, I think. And it reflects love my it. company and, and all of this. Absolutely love it. Ashwin, I'd love to bring you back on Jamsters once again in the future. Uh, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. It's been a delight chatting with you, man. It's been completely my pleasure, Hardik. And before you bring me back, make sure your audience wants that. Um, <laughs> otherwise, we'll be doing them a great disservice. But uh, I'm happy to come back on anytime uh, you and the audience feels like I should be on. If you enjoyed this episode of Jamsters, please make sure you subscribe to EPLog Media and all major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, GeoSavan, Ghana, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, among many others, for upcoming episodes. You know, I love listening from each one of you. So please make sure you share this podcast with your friends and family and your colleagues. And please make sure to drop a comment on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there. And also, if you're listening on EPLog Media, they've recently launched a feature where you can comment on the particular episode too. Your support is my fuel. You can connect with me on Instagram at the rate Hardik or on LinkedIn too. Catch you on the other episode.